we go to verse 36. It says, And after some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return to visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and, um, and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas, Silas, Barnabas, excuse me, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So we see that, now remember last week when, when chapter 15, we talked about uh, the Jerusalem council. And what was the issue going on that they were discussing at the Jerusalem council? Exactly. I mean, the, the Judaizers, were, they were wanting to circumcise all the new Greek Gentile believers. And they said that it was a requirement for salvation. And also that they would follow the, the law of Moses. And so they had a big debate about it. And then they decided to go down, because they were in Antioch, they decided to go down to um, Judea and to meet with all of the elders. And they discussed this whole matter. And they finally, the Lord just kind of, through the Holy Spirit, brought them together in one accord. And so they went back and delivered the letter that they had written to the church in Antioch. And so now we see that they are planning to start their, uh, Paul's second uh, missionary journey. And his plan was to return to, the, to visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So basically his plan was to go his second missionary journey would be to go back and strengthen the churches that were already planted. Okay, So we get into chapter 16, and starting in verse 1, it says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that this father was a Greek. As they were on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observances the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Do you all find something strange about these verses after what we went through in chapter 15? Anybody? What? Exactly. That's right. I mean, they went through all of this rigmarole about circumcision because, you know, they were saying that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And then he gets Timothy and circumcises him. And so if, if you don't really kind of read into what's going on here, that would be, seem to be kind of confusing, right? Well, remember that Timothy's mother was a Jew. Okay, but his father was a Greek and likely an unbeliever. And so, if he if they're going to minister to the Jews, what's the what's the first place that they went to when they went into a city? The synagogue. Who's in the synagogue? Jews, right? So, if they are going to be ministering to Jews first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, 
then it was necessary for an act of love in order to not offend the people that they're going to minister to, to go ahead and circumcise Timothy. It wasn't an act of um, necessity for salvation, but it was an act of love for the Jews, is what it was. And so, because his mother was, was Jew, he was half Jewish, then the Jews would have been saying, well, if you're Jewish, then why aren't you circumcised? So that's why they did that. And if you think about what Paul's, how Paul approaches ministry, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I, want, I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. And to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people. By that means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in this blessings. So, we see here what Paul is talking about. To the Jew, he became like a Jew. To the Gentile, he became like a Gentile. And this is his reasoning for circumcising Timothy whenever they're going to minister to the Jews. Now, he did not circumcise Titus. Remember that? He refused to do that. And the reason was because Titus was a Greek. He was a Gentile, and there was no need to. So they didn't expect that of him. But Paul refers to Timmy, Timothy. Uh, I, he probably called him Timmy on time. <laughs> he referred to Timothy as a brother in Philippians and as a son in First and Second Timothy. So you, you know that they really developed a good bond together. And Paul truly loved Timothy. And so what we see here is he, he circumcises him. And then they go throughout the cities and they're delivering to them the observances of the decision that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in the numbers daily. So Paul is doing what he's planning on doing. He's going and he's strengthening the churches. He's encouraging them. And he is bringing with them this, this letter that, you know, that, they, that came from the Jerusalem council about... Um, you know, they're not, they're not going to lay the burden of circumcision and following the law. They just gave them a few small directives, basically telling them to stay away from things sacrificed to idols, blood, and sexual immorality. Okay. So if we get into verse 6, and I'm going to tell you, I divided this, this chapter into some sections. And the main topic of this lesson today is the sovereignty of God. And we're going to see it plainly all throughout this chapter. And so I've, what I've done is I've, I've divided it into like three or four different sections. And the first one is we see God's sovereignty in our paths, in the paths that we, of, our, of our lives, the paths that our lives take. And that's in verses 6 through 10. So let's read that. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, when they had come up to Mysia, they attempt, attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, 
passing by Mysia, they went down to Trous, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel. And I don't know if you noticed this, but in that last verse, he starts referring to we and us. Who, who's doing, who wrote this book or this letter? Luke. Luke, there you go. Luke wrote it. So a lot of theologians and scholars believe that it was possible that at Lystra that Luke joined up with them. Okay? And they believe that because there's several we passages uh, throughout the rest of the, of the book. So notice, though, that they are going through and they're, they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, they're in Asia. That's where Lystra and Derbe is. It's in, it's in Asia. Macedonia, though, is in Europe. Okay? And they have not yet gone to Europe. But all they're doing right now is they're strengthening the churches. They're not doing any kind of evangelism or church planning because the Holy Spirit is preventing them from doing it in Asia. You would think, I mean, Paul would be like, well, this is what I, had, this is what I do. I mean, why would you prevent me from doing what I do, right? I can't preach the word here. But the Holy Spirit stopped him. And I know he did because, I mean, Paul is, we know that Paul is very in tune with the Holy Spirit. He wants to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. And so he's preventing him from doing it. But he's got a purpose. There's always a purpose behind the plan of God. And this is where we see the sovereignty of God. We're studying Romans in our Wednesday night care group. And in chapter 1, Paul tells the church in Rome that he had tried on several occasions to visit them, but had been prevented. As a matter of fact, he never does get to Rome except for when he went to Rome in chains. So I'm sure that wasn't part of Paul's plan, was to go to Rome in chains, but that's ultimately what happened to him. But the, Paul's, God's plan for Paul had already been laid out before the foundation of the world. Paul's plan in chapter 15 was to go back to the cities where they had proclaimed the word of God, and, but, but God had bigger plans for him. Even though Paul was beginning to do that, he was prevented from starting any new churches or do, doing any kind of evangelism. And Paul also, remember back in chapter 15, he had a plan to take Barnabas with him, right? But what happened there? They got in an argument over Mark, and he ended up taking Timothy with him. Or, I'm excusing Silas with him. And so we like to think that we have a plan, don't we? How many of y'all have, have made plans, and all of a sudden it didn't work out the way that you thought it should work out? Isn't that right? It seems like that happens to me every day, <laughs> you know? But we like to think that we have a plan. Our plan is good. In Proverbs 19.21, it says, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is a purpose of the Lord that will stand. And if we, if we took a, uh, an example from the Bible, we go back to the Tower of Babel. Okay, you remember that story? Genesis chapter 11. Previous to this, God had told Mo, uh, Noah, and you know, Noah's Ark, all that, starting in uh, Genesis chapter 6, and after the flood and everything, God told Noah, what did he tell him? Be fruitful and fill the earth, right? That's what he told him to do. Be fruitful and fill the earth. 
But if we see in Genesis chapter 11, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick and excuse me, and they had brick for stone and butumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So these people's plan was that they were going to make for themselves a city. They were going to make the, the, the towers that would reach up into the heavens, and they were going to make for themselves a great name. But the thing is, is when it, remember when God called Abram, which would become Abraham? He said, I'm going to bless you. You will be a blessing, and I will make your name great. You think about that. These people are trying to bless themselves and make their own names great. But God had a different plan. And not only that, they were not dispersing over the face of the earth like God told Noah to have his descendants do, which these are the descendants of Noah. And so they're all just kind of staying in one place, huddled together for security, for safety, and to make a name for themselves. But God wants to disperse them because that was his plan. And so he comes down, confuses their language, and they can't speak to one another. So guess what? They dispersed because that's what God had planned all along. God is sovereign in our plans. God's plans for us have been decided before the beginning of time. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So he's saying that before time ever began, my day, every day in my life had already been written out in eternity past. Isn't that something? I mean, think about that. Everything in our life has already been planned out. And we like to believe that it's just the good things that God has planned for us. But that's not the case, and we're going to see that here in just a little bit. In, in James chapter 4, verses 23 through 16, it says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about people making plans to go into these towns to do this and that in order to make a profit. But Paul says, you don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what God's plan is. You need to live your life in faith day by day because if you go on making your own plans, doing your own thing without even considering the plan of God, then you can boast, right? But your boasting is evil. It's just like in boasting in salvation. Whenever Paul says in Ephesians, he says, we are saved by grace through faith and this is not of ourselves so that no man can boast. And it's the same thing with God's plan for our life. We cannot take credit for any of our successful paths because God's already laid them out before the time ever began. As believers, God is leading us along 
the, the path that he has already laid out for us. And we see that again in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And again, if we see any success in our ministry or anything such as this, there is no amount of credit that we can take for ourselves because this is all the work of God that God had already planned out before time ever even began. <laughs> okay. I don't know if that's an amen or what. but <laughs> So the question is, how does God lead us along this path? Well, in Philippians 2.13, he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know what that means? It means that any part of ministry that I'm doing that God has already ordained for me to do, he has already placed the desire in my heart to do so. It is God who works in me to will, even to want to do it, and to act upon it. It's already part of God's plan. And because of that, he gives us the will and the ability to act on it. Um, as we go through our lives, we should always be seeking God to help, uh, help us to trust him while we're on the path that he's chosen for us. And we see that in Psalm 119, verse 105. He says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so how do we see the path that God has laid us on? We're on the path. It doesn't matter if we see it or not. We're on the path because he's already laid it out, right? But how, do, how are we aware of it? How are we see what God's path is for our life? Was through his word. What does it say here? It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Why do we have a light for our path? What is the purpose of that? See where we're going, right? And the funny thing is, most of the time, it's one step at a time. He doesn't, he doesn't shine. It's not, it's not like we have headlights, right? He didn't say, uh, your word is a headlight so I can see everything out in front of me. A lamp. We're taking one step at a time. But God will light our path in his word. And so we're always seeking in his word to illuminate our path for us. So we see that God is sovereign over our plans. Or not our plans, but God is sovereign over all plans. For all men and women. God's, God is also sovereignty in our hearts. Let's read verse, starting in verse 11. So setting sail from Trous, we made a direct vo voyage to Samothrace to the following, uh, and the following day to Neapolis. And from there, I wish they had city names kind of like Weatherford and, you know, Brock and stuff like that. <laughs> And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed to be, there was supposed to be a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. After she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have any if, if if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So we see God's sovereignty here 
uh, in the hearts of Lydia because God opened her heart to be able to receive the gospel. Now, God was already preparing Lydia to receive the gospel because we see that back in um, verse 14. It says, uh, she was a worshiper of God. Okay, Although she had not been exposed to the gospel, God was already preparing her for the gospel. Remember Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10? Uh, when Peter went down there to, to speak to him after God had given him the vision, and Cornelius was the Gentile. In Acts chapter 10, it says, verses 1 and 2, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So even in Cornelius' life, we see evidence of God preparing him for the gospel when Peter was to come along and give it to him. But still, that is the initiative of God. It has nothing to do with my desires because Romans chapter 3 says what? It says, I have no desire to seek after God. There's no one righteous. No one seeks God. Not even one. So God is sovereign over our hearts. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, the word draws doesn't mean that he lures us or woos us to himself. A lot of people will interpret that that way, right? Like drawing somebody to yourself. But that's what that, not what that word meant. I did a word study on that word one time, and I looked at its use all throughout the New Testament, that same word. And in every occasion, it was an act of force in order to draw something out, such as a bucket going down into a well, drawing water out of a well. The water has no resistance, the water cannot say no. That's what we call what? Irresistible grace. If we come to Jesus, it is merely a work of God and none on our part at all. So we see God's sovereignty over the heart. We also see God's sovereignty in our circumstances. Let's look in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to, uh, to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So what we see here is God's sovereignty even over our circumstances. 
God's sovereignty in verses 16 through, um, let's see, what is that? 34 is, is seen because he led Paul and Silas into this area where this woman was, you know, she was following them around. She was saying, uh, this, they're preaching the, you know, the word of the Most High God and things such as this. And Paul gets annoyed with it. Why would Paul get annoyed with somebody saying, you know, revealing who these men were? What do you think? Probably because of the source, right? It was more than likely because of the source it was coming from. And so what he does, he turns around, and probably she was probably pretty annoying too, you know, I would imagine that's some of it. But he turned around and he casts his demon out, and these guys are mad now because their prophet is gone. And so what do they do? They throw him into prison. But this was all part of God's plan. So we think sometimes that, you know, everything, if God's got, got a plan for us, we like to use, you know, Romans 8, 28, we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And we misinterpret that by saying God's going to give us just good things. But that's not at all what happens. I mean, just look at Paul's life. Shipwreck, stoned, beaten. As a matter of fact, he was stoned in Lystra. Remember, they were, they were trying to make sacrifices to him, you know, whenever he's up there preaching. And he said, no, no, no. And then, and then all of a sudden, they, they, they turn on him. And they... they they stone him and drag him out of the city and left him for dead. And what does he do? He gets back up and walks right back into the city. Paul's a courageous man for the gospel. Nothing's going to stop him. But in these circumstances, we see God is working all of these things out. In John 16, 33, it says, I have said these things to you, that in me you, you may have peace. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. But in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So he's telling his disciples that in me, you have peace. But in the world, you will not have peace. He had actually so, told them something similar in previous chapter in John 15, 18 through 21. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. But if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they do to you on my account, by my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So this is what's happening to Paul and Silas. Same thing. Okay? They cast this demon out of this woman, made her owner you know, mad because he lost all her profit. Now they throw him into prison. But if we look you know, at another biblical example, we go back to Joseph. Right? I mean, that's the obvious example. Joseph's uh, brothers were jealous of him. And so they sold him to the Ishmaelites in, you know, into slavery. And he ends up in Potiphar's house. I'm sure this wasn't part of Joseph's plan, right? He ends up in slavery and he's sold to this, to this man. And, but God was with him while he was in Potiphar's house. And he, he prospered in Potiphar's house. But then one day, Potiphar's wife comes along and tries to seduce him and he's having none of it. And as a matter of fact, she grabs his, his cloak and he takes off and it, you know, it rips and it's in her hand. And so she accuses him of trying to seduce her, take advantage of her. And so 
Potiphar gets mad, throws him into prison. While he's in prison, the word says that the Lord was with him, that God was with him. And so he's very successful in prison as well. I mean, as, as far as success in prison can be, but I mean, he was, he was doing good in prison. And he, he was placed in charge of, of everything, you know, there in the prison. Well, while he's there, you got the cupbearer and the baker, and they have a dream. He interprets the dream. Didn't work out good for one, not the other so much. But ultimately, this led to Pharaoh hearing about Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. And so he brings him in to interpret his dream that he had. And basically, the dream said that we're going to have seven years of feast and then seven years of famine. And what we should do is make sure that we prepare during the times of feast so that we have enough for the famine. And so, but God took Joseph along this ride, this bumpy, uncomfortable, miserable ride of being imprisoned, being thrown into, or being sold into slavery, slavery, being imprisoned, and takes him through all of this for a specific purpose. Because that's part of God's plan. It is his plan. What was the purpose? So that ultimately, when Joseph is in Egypt, in Pharaoh's court, second in command only to Pharaoh, his family comes up. And you remember what the prophecy that God had given Abraham many, many, many years before this was that your people will be enslaved for 400 years. Because that's what God did just through Joseph going to Egypt so that he could get Israel in Egypt for the purpose that they would ultimately be enslaved. And we think, that doesn't sound too nice, right? I mean, why would God have his own people enslaved for so 400 years? It was part of his plan. We don't understand what God takes us through on a daily basis. The miseries, the trials, the tribulations, the hurt, the loss. We have no idea why God, if He loves me so much, why would He take me through this? Because He's got a greater plan and He does it because He loves you. And James said, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because it, in, it increases our, our perseverance and our faith. We can only grow through the hard times. It's, it's easy on the mountaintop. But if you, I mean, you think about a mountain, a really high mountain, on the very, above the timberline, nothing grows, right? We like to be on the mountaintop. But everything grows in the valley. I'm sorry. Paul had a purpose, um, God had a purpose in this, in Paul and Silas being thrown into prison. And the obvious, the obvious pur purpose we see in the following verses, starting verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to him. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison was shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, 
what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word to, of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And they took them, took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up along the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that, that he had believed in God. So what's going on here is that the obvious purpose of Paul and Silas being thrown into this prison, of course, was so that the jailer and his family would be saved, right? But that's just a step in the plan of God. Every instance and every circumstance we go through is merely a step in the greater plan of God. And the thing is, is that we cannot understand the whole plan of God. We just obey Him and trust Him as each step is taken. That's the only thing we can do in the good times as well as in the bad. But we know that as a result of this step, there was a, the jailer was saved in all of his household. And then in verse 35, it says, But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent, have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid because they, when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So Paul mentions here that he's a Roman citizen, okay? And I want to read something from a, a commentary um, about this, this instant here. Paul was a Roman citizen by birth. And Tarsus, where Paul was born, was a free city. And we see that in Acts chapter 21, verse 39. The emperor Pompey made Cilicia a Roman province in 64 BC, and its capital, Tarsus, was a free city from the time of Augustus. Although it's unknown exactly how his parents became Roman, uh, citizens of Rome, Paul was a Roman citizen by birth, which was a pr privilege many did not have. Some could buy Roman citizenship, but it was pricey. And we see that in Acts chapter 22, verse 28. The privileges of a citizen, citizenship explained how Paul escaped flogging in Acts 22 and was able to appeal for a hearing before Emperor Nero in Acts 25. God used Paul's background for his glory, for God's glory. And Paul testified that God set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by His grace in Galatians 1.15. With his Jewish upbringing and knowledge of Greek culture and philosophy, from his time in Tarsus, Paul was prepared for ministry to both Jews and Gentiles throughout the Roman world. Paul's status as a Roman citizen by birth benefited him, benefited him greatly as he traveled on his missionary journeys to fulfill Jesus' words that he would be a chosen instrument to proclaim the name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel, Acts 9.15.
So you imagine this. The, the, the circumstance that Paul was born under, a Roman citizen, I mean, the, the fact that, that just being born like this, they, they probably would have never thought that it would be advantageous for him in ministry later on. But the thing is, is God is even sovereign over our past because he prepares us for where he's taking us. There was a reason why Paul was, was born a Roman citizen. There was a reason why he, had, uh, he understood Greek culture along with the law of Moses. As a matter of fact, he was a Pharisee. So who better that God could prepare to go reach both the Jew and the Gentile? And if we look back on our past and we see maybe the circumstances that we were born or grew, grew up in, and, and if we look back and we say, you know, that's a bad time for me or that was a great time for me or whatever the case may be, it was the exact time that God prepared for you. You were born in the exact right place to the exact right parents in the exact right time because God is preparing you for His work because God is sovereign over all. Any questions, comments, complaints? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. I mean, how much more secure can we be knowing that you are sovereign, that you have written our lives out before the foundation of the world? We are in your hands 100%. The good times, the bad times, and your plan is always perfect. And we know that you do prepare us for your works. And you've done that even before time began as well. And Father, I pray that we'll use your word to seek this path that you, that you have us on so that we can see the steps that you are leading us on and to trust you in that. Even when we don't understand what you're doing with us, we don't understand the, the pain or the hurt that we might be going through or even the good times that we go through. We don't understand what you're doing, but we know that your plan is perfect. And we pray, Father, that you'll help us to trust you in it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.